It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and this episode is, uh, I think we're going to call it Major Label Weirdos, and I think this one's going to be a lot of fun. We decided for this episode to look at musical ensembles, bands who were either released on or distributed by or received backing in some way by major record labels, mainstream presence, whose music is undeniably weird, which is a curious thing when it happens, right? Because major labels in particular, less so now, but we're talking about, we're going to start in the mid-1960s, are marketplace-driven entities. So you think they only release music that they have some confidence as a product there's a market for. And so we wanted to look at not only how this curious, weird music, like how it is, like what makes it weird, but how it broke through, how it made it to the mainstream. For this episode, we have the whole quartet of contributors here. I'm really excited. I'm your host, Stuart Sims. I'm Lisette Sims. Anthony Campolo. And I'm Dave Gant. One of the things that I've always found very interesting about both the music industry and the movie industry is that they're industries that deal in art. So there's this strange tension that happens there because they're subject to market demands and market needs, but they're also dealing with the creative product. And there's always push and pull of... You want to appeal to the most people, but you also want to make interesting art at the same time. And some bands straddle that line in a very interesting way. And it's been something that tension has something that has lately become a real catch-22 for the movie industry, right? Because they spend so much now to get a product to create a product. The blockbuster model has that, gone insane. Yeah, that they have to get a huge return on investment. So it's put even, you know, much more phenomenal tension on those twin masters that you serve if you're trying to monetize creative work. Because the risk to build factor an industry on goes that. way up, yeah. so you have to go with safer products. And so things become blander and blander, and it's more and more interesting. These weirdos become more and more interesting, right? Now, of course, the Internet is a huge destabilizing influence on that. But you have, Anthony, a great clip from Frank Zappa, one of the weirdos, early weirdos we're going to be looking at, that frames this whole thing really well, right? Yeah, he talks about how sometimes there's moments in music history and even just cultural history where something really new and crazy is happening and it's such a big thing, and the kids are so into it that the guys in the, at the major labels, as he calls the guys with cigars and suits, just say, I don't know what's going on anymore. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't get it, but the kids are into it, so sign a bunch of these bands. They just go out and find a bunch of artists that have small followings and that show some talent, and you end up having these interesting isolated periods where all these weirdo bands happen to get signed. And then there, those periods, those are the punctu- they punctuate the stasis of record companies trying to replicate what they know works, right? Yeah. Where you get a lot of kind of copycat music. So let's listen to that Zappa clip. I, I think it's worth putting the whole clip in there so everybody can hear it. It's a great point that he makes. Remember the 60s, you know, that era that a lot of people, you know, have these glorious memories of, which... They really weren't that great those years. But one thing that did happen during the 60s was some music of an unusual or experimental nature did get recorded and did get released. Now look at who the executives were in those companies at those times. Not hip young guys. These were cigar-chomping old guys who looked at the product that came and said, I don't know. Who knows what it is? Record it, stick it out of it, sells, all right. We were better off with those guys than we are now with the supposedly hip young executives, you know, who are making the decisions of what people should see and hear in the marketplace. These, the young guys are more conservative and more dangerous to the art form than the old guys with the cigars ever were. The weirdos matter then because they punctuate the equilibrium. 
Yeah, because once something becomes so bland and overdone, there's always going to be a reaction against it. The pendulum always swings. Whichever way it goes towards always ends up swinging the other way. It's because of the commercial uh, nature of most of the industry that stasis is inevitable, right? Because once there's an audience for something, content producers are going to pile as much product as they can into that space. It always ends up following Uh, the listeners. And so the weirdos, they also, right, they just stimulate our imagination in a general sense. They take us outside of what we're used to in some way. And I think all the weirdos that we're going to listen to their music on this episode have really unique perspectives and reasons for not just distinctive aesthetics, like literally their sound being so unique, but there's a lot of stuff that underpins their perspective artistically, philosophically, and stuff that's distinctive too. And one thing I also really enjoy about them is they encourage you to not take music too seriously, that it's an experience that can be so many very different things. And I find that very often people can be elitist or serious about their music yeah and this kind of music really encourages you to just kind of let go of that music is serious business no Mm. jokes okay well all right i'm excited for this topic because i was always a big fan of weird music especially in high school when i was first getting into music the mainstream stuff didn't really appeal to me too much I, i got into that later on once i started to appreciate all kinds of music more but I got really into weird music first, I think, and that was the stuff that really hooked me. What was the appeal for you? It's because it's different. I appreciated the difference of the experience because music is an experience. And when something is completely different from all the other music you've ever heard in your life, it's a singular experience. Were you, uh, as a kid, were you generally iconoclastic like that? I mean, did you always seek out what was different when it came to art for sure especially with movies i was all about david lynch and the you know cronenberg and weird directors like that and i went that way with music too it's interesting because i was a super mainstream kind of kid oh no uh and a classical music kid obviously because that was my initial musical background so it took me a while to develop uh, a taste for the weird and i got to it i think more through composers than through recording artists like i came to love ives before i came to love zappa that made getting into weird classical music a lot easier for me when i was getting into classical music and all the modernist stuff that for some classical musicians it's a huge turnoff for them but since i was already into all this other weird music it was just more weird <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just more yeah. like the weird uh, stuff of this, this stuff's kind. even crazier but this is actually where the weirdest music is here's what's interesting to me about being drawn to it as a younger person particularly as a teenager is because if you're really drawn to weird music and you you know you that's what you sort of surround yourself with and think about you're also kind of rejecting a lot of social tribal identity the role that music Mm -hmm. plays uh in a a larger sense in the adolescence oh for sure so many people and so that's why i was asking you were you more iconoclastic as a person generally just sort of natively that's just how you Uh, were not really i don't think so i was just very low-key as a teenager i kind of tried to mind my own business because i always i I, um i i actually went through the experience of when other kids liked something I liked, it sort of ruined it for me, and I had to find new, different. Th- uh, you were just reflexive. Yeah, because I was like, "Oh, wait, if these kids like it, and it's, it's, I'm you doing something wrong." Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I, I sort of went through that that phase. Every band was a sellout. Yeah, yeah. Was it about for you the music itself? Like you got tired of it, or was it really just the tribal kind? Oh of no, very much a tribal thing. Social it was like, like I, I, I don't want to be part of this tribe, so I've got to find something that too obscure for anybody else so to you like. were completely on the yeah. other side well i felt was. alienated so i need my music to be alienated from the rest of as uh, this, this isn't like my whole childhood but like certainly like that 11 to through 13 period when yeah it was interesting because there were two there were two kind of kids i knew who liked the really weird stuff in high school and i always was friends with uh, lots of different kinds of people even though i tried to fit in and be sort of bland myself and they were the kids who were sort of reflexively weird because they were confronting the world and pushing back at it, right? So they yeah. liked weird stuff because it was weird. So yeah. they were self-consciously weird. If 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 if, it, if you don't like it, then you know it's doing yeah. its job, right? And I tended not to want to hang out with them as much. It was the second kind who were some of my very favorite friends and my most important friends for opening up my world. And they were the ones who were into the weird stuff because they were really thoughtful about what they listened to and read. And They're authentically and, into that weird music. Exa- yeah. and, and they were stimulated by it because 
good weird stuff tends to be more substantial than you know your average whatever. Your good, it really gets what? you outside of the box in a way that more and mainstream gives you stuff more. never gets you. Those kids were the ones that I always loved hanging out with, not least because they opened up my world so much. Like they just turned me on to so much awesome weird stuff that I would have been socially uncomfortable listening to because like Dave, the social identifier, the tribal stuff was powerful with me yeah. in my adolescence. And it was more that I just didn't want to rock the boat. I think I became one of those weird, like the kids who are actually into weird stuff because it's good. And by the time I had high school, but I definitely it had a stage in. where it I needed, I just needed to make sure that no one else liked this around me. I, I was just wanted to say real quick that part of that good weirdness is that the weird stuff that gets out there is already sort of curated because you can't make weird bad stuff and have somebody print records for you, right? If you're doing something really weird, then it better have some kind of merit to it. And that's why the major label weirdos are particularly interesting. That's a really good point because to be substantially weird, truly weird in your music making and to get mainstream industry backing and support in some way means it must actually be genuinely pretty good. Mm -hmm. And of course, all the ones we're going to listen to, we try only to listen to something that's really good, but there is a lot of substance to each of the, the not just the musical acts and specific tracks we're going to listen to. I think it's important to say that when we say weird, we mean it in a very positive sense. I feel like sometimes like weirdo can have a negative connotation and I feel like we should just make it clear that this is a good thing. It's okay to to be weird and we encourage it. It's not weird for the sake of weird. That's the kind of stuff I think we're avoiding. And it's more like this is weird because we creatively want to express something new and different. Yeah, I would say that's a really good point, Lisette, uh, that we should clarify. I would say weird in the sense of singular, distinctive, original, genuine, unexpected, innovative, eclectic, exploratory. <laughs> Even random, eclectic to the point of randomness, I think, is a quality a lot of these share in common. Distinctiveness, I think, is is to me like the voice, the, like the sound world of all these bands and the compositional voice of the songwriters or writer behind them is totally unique to them. A singularity to it that exactly. when you listen to it, it's you know it's that artist. Sorry, are you guys out of adjectives yet? No. Did we go on for too long? <laughs> Just like a Mad Lib. It was every adjective we could think of. Weird is a compliment and also just sort of an objective description because compared to the stuff going on around all these artists at the time this music was released, it was weird. It was it was really different. I find that weird music is just so immediately striking to so many people that as soon as they hear it, they always have that immediate reaction to like, what is that? Like either annoyance or just fascination by it. All right, at this point, the words sound strange to me, so uh, why don't we dive in some music here? We've arranged our examples roughly chronologically, not strictly chronologically, but roughly, and we start back in 1966, which was a time of change in mainstream music generally, and I think that's probably what made an opening for the, our first artist, Captain Beefheart. Yeah, this may have been the most disruptive moment in music history was like 63 64 65 66 because that's when you had the beatles and the beach boys releasing their most incredible stuff and you were like right on the cusp of Jimi hendrix and so many things this is when the major labels realized they had no idea what was going on anymore right especially i would say 66 and 65 66 67 very specifically mm -hmm. those three years and this is captain beefheart is right in the middle of it not only is he delightfully weird in his sound i like there's some obvious stuff right away but i love how meta his music is because it sounds on one level like rock and roll that got real drunk or, or took acid yeah, or kind something. of primitive yeah but on the other hand there are all these compositional flourishes and stuff like meta commentary it's on so the much style more sophisticated than you realize when you first hear it yeah like he'll take a beat and really grind that you're accenting the backbeat or he'll take some feature of the music and make it a caricature of itself I have a quick question. I don't really know anything about Captain Beefheart. Yeah. You keep on saying he. Was this like one guy or is this a band? It, it was a guy and he had a band in various incarnations around him. Oh, okay. Yes. So there was, in fact, a Captain Beefheart. Yes. It wasn't just a catchy name. There was name. An, an individual behind this music, yes. 
His first single, his first notable recording, is a track called Diddy Wad Diddy. Sorry, 1966. And it has those features that I just mentioned. Let's give it a quick listen. Captain Beefheart and his magic band. I think I'm going to need to explain to me why that's so weird. Because for me personally, just from my own experience, I don't find that that odd or unusual in any way. Well, remember 1966 is a long time. It's almost 50 years ago. It's hard for something that far away to sound weird, first of all, I think, because if it is at all influential, we've heard a lot of other things that sound like it in some way. And Captain Beefheart, definitely influential. But I think... For me, what sounds weird about it is in 1966, so he's doing a blues tune, pretty mm-hmm. much a clearly a blues yeah. tune, but the sounds are caricatures of blues sounds, right? So like a heavy bass that just plays the roots of the chords, but it's distorted. Like the bass mm-hmm. is so fat that it's this blob of sound. So it's it's a caricature of an early rock and roll blues sound or, an, or a recorded blues sound electric bass. And then the, the guitar is so, like it's a jangly sort of, it evokes mm-hmm. a Delta blues sort of sound, but it's so jangly and there's so much like reverb and the sound is so loud, loud that it sounds almost like chains clanking, like it's a caricature of that sound in the form of a 12-bar blues. Okay. That's weird, you know, it's like it's trippy. And I think there's going to be an escalation of weirdness that we'll see as we go chronologically that it's always going to have to exist in its own time and context, and this is just the beginning of the weirdness. I also think the vocal line is pretty interesting when it gets to that when it goes into that section it's, that's kind of weird man like that's not a typical you know hook in a song <laughs> the vocal line is definitely what would grab most people's attention is the most overtly weird thing about the track and you'll hear an evolution of captain beefheart's weirdness here dave it with, still sounds really straight ahead to with me the second, Sorry. hold on hold on <laughs> let's go to moonlight on vermont 1969 just a few years later okay this is captain beefheart and his magic band from the album Trout Mask Replica. Okay, wow me. Moonlight on Vermont, 1969. Okay, well, well, that's that's a little more more eclectic side than the, the last track. So yes, I will acknowledge the weirdness of this. Now, uh, the last one was just sort of like to me like a it was proto weird. Well, I mean, it was, it was it a was, good place to start. It was a as blues a that, that's, that had that sort of '60s timbre, like you know CCR and all that. You know, that's just the general timbre to me is that way. But this album has a really fascinating story behind it, and it is strange because it was Captain Beefheart having his band live in this house months at a time, maybe close to a year, and they just rehearsed this album. There was rumors at the time that the album was totally improvised and just made up on the spot, but it was actually carefully rehearsed, every single note, and Captain Beefheart was like a drill sergeant. 
and it got really weird almost Charles Manson-y at times. So he really composed all... Because that, to me, is like... It, it's just about to spill over into free jazz. He came up with moments. it with the musicians. It was kind of a collaborative creation. But then it was like, okay, that's your part. Exactly. Now we're going to perfect this randomness. Yeah, okay. it was all played exactly, specifically that way. Every single note. Could they reproduce the timbres live, or was any of that? It was that all just like they were like too much signal into the speakers to get the distortion. Well, you can still do that. Before it got to the mic, or I mean, I'm just wondering, like, is that what they would have sounded like live, or was some of that in the production? I think so because they rehearsed it so much they could just reproduce it. That was the that's the impact that's the effect it had on me. Yeah, it was they were creating all those sounds with speakers. It was recorded super quickly because they were able to reproduce it so well. It has a really interesting legacy because despite being so overtly weird, it ended up becoming one of those classic rock albums that was like a gateway for people. And Matt Groening had a really funny thing about it where he was talking about the first time he listened to it, he thought it was the worst thing he had ever heard. And then after listening to it like three times, he was like, oh, it sounds like this on purpose. And then it like clicked and he was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. What I love about this track as compared to the first one that we played is I feel like you can hear it's on a spectrum. It's on a continuum of development. It's like his music keeps getting shaked up, shook, shook up, shaken, shaken, harder and harder. Shook, shook up. It's all shook up. Uh, it keeps getting shaken harder and harder. And so the, the part, like it keeps coming apart at the seams. And just starting to sort of disintegrate and melt into this other weird type and of music. Sort of, or becoming this more and more meta version of itself. Like the guitar player is not playing a guitar part. He's playing the sounds of a guitar part. It's fascinating. It still sounds like a song, though. He hasn't broken out of those boundaries yet, Dave. I think there is some merit to your observation about the the weirdness being contained just a bit. Because it still sounds like a song. Sounds like a really crazy song, but a song. John Peel, he said if there's anything in the history of popular music that he thinks you could describe as a work of art and that would make sense to people in the art world... He thinks it would be that album because it's just so, like you said, it's very meta. Our next artist is Frank Zappa, and that's a gimme for an episode like this. He is the iconoclast among iconoclasts, I think, among American musicians. One of the epitome of experimentation in popular music. Right, and I don't think we have two samples from his work, and there are no two samples that would adequately represent, let me say just as a disclaimer, at the top of this little section about Frank Zappa that would serve as adequate representation of his output. He was a uh, constantly evolving musical artist. Prolific, for sure. Prolific and constantly evolving. And so his whole body of work, for me, remains interesting all the way through. We picked a couple of tracks that are uh, from uh, successive albums, 1973 and 1974, right in the heart of his creative output and right when he was breaking through into larger consciousness and and cultural impact, uh, certainly with the with the with the albums that these two tracks are from, I think, and they're also pretty typical of a lot of his work, I think, and a lot of what makes his music weird. So it's a good pair of things to to try out. Uh, the first track we have from Zappa is uh, 1973. It's from the album Overnight Sensation. The track is Montana. I would like. To have seen Montana. I might be moving to Montana soon Just to raise me up a crop of dental floss Raising it up, waxing it down in a little white box that I can sell uptown. By myself, I wouldn't have no boss, but I'd be raising my lonely dental floss. Just my Dave, does that 
cross the uh, bar of weird for you? No. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I got that. This is the first time I heard that track, but I, I understood. You're undermining our podcast premise here. Isn't that why I'm here? You're not except you're the underminer. You're not accepting <laughs> any of our tracks as weird. I think that track's pretty objectively weird. Uh, I got a few things that I would mention. What do you I mean, what do you guys think? Yeah, but it's also pretty groovy. <laughs> well, that's I mean, I think that's what it makes it work, but right? I, There's I something enjoy to grab that about onto. most of Zappa's music is that he often has a pretty sick groove. Weird music for me that doesn't have anything to grab onto starts to grate after a little while. And I think that's a thread that he uses, and, and I like it. Always got a nice groove. There's always his jazz roots in there. Yeah, weirdness with a hook to it. I was just going to say, for me, that's not like, okay, so it's like a jazz rock kind of thing, which, you know, I know jazz, I know rock, okay, it's fine, and then little soul kind of chorus is there uh, yeah well i would say first of all it's that this is so mainstream that that eclectic mix first of all makes it weird because not a lot of listeners have as wide range of reference as you do musically so they wouldn't pick out all those styles right away it would just sound like this is kind of frankenstein music because it's all these parts don't normally go together so i think to a lot of listeners just that Stylistically, it would strike them as quite unusual. I must say, I, I liked it. I liked it quite a lot. Oh, I, I like it a lot, too. The other thing, well, a couple of other things that strike me that would be very weird to listeners are the asymmetrical meters, the changing mm-hmm. meters, and a lot of them are asymmetrical, so the beats aren't always the same length. So if you're tapping your foot to it, you probably find yourself getting lost every now and then and wondering what happened. And I think also the really sudden textural and and timbral shifts not just stylistic but like it's kaleidoscopic it's just constantly shifting you can never you're never on firm ground you get into this sound and then boom it's something completely different and then it's something completely different yeah even just the shift from a guy just speaking to you and then all of a sudden these awesome female vocal harmonies come in and it's oh oh okay <laughs> i didn't know they were over there <laughs> Yeah, Sly and the Family Stone. You were snuck like up on me. <laughs> right. So I think all that certainly qualifies as as being pretty weird. Certainly not like, I mean, who could you say that sounds like? Who does that sound like? Anybody? Does it sound like anybody? I think well, bits and pieces of it sound like different things to me. Like the beginning sounded almost like cartoon music to me. I could imagine just cartoon mice running around while listening to that. And then it goes into... The xylophone definitely uh hits that button. And then it goes into like 70s funk kind of music, like film soundtrack kind of music. And then it just goes to all these other different things. I found some of it reminiscent of Sly and the Family Stone. And then, of course, my favorite artist when I was like in high school was Rasan Roland Kirk, who's sort of, I guess, a weirdo of, of the jazz world. But those fast shifts that you were talking about, feel like those happen a lot there so for my favorite restaurant that's where i found it not weird because i'm like oh i mean yeah, I, I know this okay our next example is from the album apostrophe the following year which had bigger popular success especially this track if if most people only know one zappa track this is probably the one they know don't eat the yellow snow no i'm getting zero recognition around no the table. i agree <laughs> i know yeah. that you shouldn't do that <laughs> yeah it's a it's a bad idea this is don't eat the yellow snow I was an Eskimo Frozen wind began to blow Under my boots and around my toes Frost that bit the ground below A hundred degrees below zero And my mama cried And my mama cried That's 
that track makes an interesting contrast to the one uh, we just listened to, Montana, because I think it has a lot of those same features that we pointed out, but they're they happen a little uh, less quickly. Like the rate of shift is a little mm-hmm. less fast, and when you know within each little piece, the musical elements are a little more accessible. But I wanted to say it occurred to me while we we're listening to it that Dave, the way you're listening to this music and thinking about it and it's striking you as not that weird is actually the way that it should be listened to in the sense, you know, as far as one can say that, because these artists are all sincere in their efforts. I think that's really important to point out. It's not a put on. Directly, yeah. And successful. I mean, there's a reason that they're the major label weirdos. Right, they- exactly. Because it, even though it's weird, it makes, it does make sense because it's sincere artistic effort. This, These are the things that... Frank Zappa needed to put his music together. He needed all these different styles. He needed these rapid shifts. He needed these, et cetera, et cetera. And so to get to the point where you can hear it as just made of the parts it is without feeling surprised or alienated by them, I think would be the way that they would hope that you would hear it. That, yeah, sure, it's weird at first, but get into my sound world and it'll make a lot of sense because there's sincere art here. My impression right now, because I've never really listened to much Frank Zappa, is that I, I should do that more because I I'm actually really enjoying this and this is this is totally grooves for me. Yeah, it's got a good groove. <laughs> you, I, told I, you, did, I didn't realize that you hadn't listened to much no. Zappa. I think that is a very. This is the first time I've heard either of these tracks. That's a very fun and interesting journey you're going to go on. There's a lot of material there, and a lot of it's real good and really interesting to listen to. He's a, an important American composer, I think, definitely and influential, undeniable. Oh yeah. Hugely influential. But his music is, uh, as we get further and further away from it, it is aging well. It's not just holding up. I think it's, it's, and I think it's something that we mentioned early on. The further you are away from it, the less weird anything's going to be, especially if it's influential, because we've heard these ideas and these sounds in bits and pieces all over the place. Because if you're influential, then you've gotten into a bunch of subsequent generations of artists work in different ways right so when we're looking back on it 30 40 50 years later it is more familiar to us if if that artist has been influential i think zappa most definitely is uh somebody that we could we could we can see that we're far enough away from it now to see it pretty clearly i think Mm -hmm. okay so it's time to stop making sense and start speaking in tongues because the name of this band is talking heads yeah we're going to talk about talking heads I just really wanted to... They're our next weird, major label weirdo? Yeah, they are <laughs> They are some weirdos. One of my favorite bands, they were started out as sort of a uh, standard kind of post-punk band with a lot of funk influences, but they evolved into something completely different. Why don't we start out with their, one of their first really weird tracks? Because like I said, they were fairly straight ahead you know, at first, um, except for the, I guess, the lyrical content, because they wrote songs about buildings and food, with Ezimbra. So why don't we play that for you? That song came out in 1979, and I think it really is a almost precursor to the whole world music thing that happens in the 80s. They were really interested in African rhythms, mm-hmm. and this is right when they started to really incorporate that into their music. Yeah. Is this weird enough for everybody? Uh. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting how they use funk to tie, mm-hmm. I think, all the disparate elements together there. 
the fact that it has a regular groove makes it more accessibly weird. Yeah. If you can just follow that, you know, funky strum guitar line and the regular pulse and let all the other stuff happen. But yeah, it's definitely weird. It's some kind of shout chorus singing the tune. Yeah. And and (laughs) I'm not sure if those are African words or just absolutely made up words because David Byrne (laughs) likes made up words too. But yeah, it's sort of a precursor to their next album, Remain in Light. With the Talking Heads, my parents were really into them. So I actually grew up with this music playing in the house. And even though it is very weird, and I acknowledge that since I grew up with it, this music seems totally normal to me. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's just another band that was popular. That so. was my Trout Mask replica experience for me personally. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's that's kind of music was around. Yeah. I remember as a very youngster, this music, like when they popped through in terms of mainstream cultural perception, and they were definitely a major label weirdo because I remember as a kid, especially seeing their videos, but hearing the music and and thinking, this is completely weird. What is this? And there's always that fascination of how'd this get in here? It didn't attract me particularly, but I was too young to really pay close enough attention, I think. But I do remember the music, and I remember it being quite weird for the time. Definitely. Yeah, yeah and that track really was sort of, that was off of Fear of Music, and that really was showed the direction they were moving in for their next album, Remain in Light, which is sort of their seminal classic Talking Heads album and this is a track off What that. was the name of it? Remain in Light and it's it's sort of the Talking Heads album if you're only going to have one and this next track is off that and it's called Once in a Lifetime it's probably the biggest hit 1980 It's very fitting in. for their best album <laughs> <laughs> such a great track i remember the first time that i heard it um i was probably 11 years old and this the rock station in my town would occasionally play something they called a retro flashback and they'd play something from the 80s and i remember that came on and i it took me years to find out what it was and it just blew my mind i love that one what grabbed your attention right away well okay there's so many things going on there as far as just like what's attention grabbing david byrne is singing like a, a preacher the cadence follows like a evangelical preacher type thing and then there's that weird noodly Brian Eno stuff underneath everything that is the time is there's all these polyrhythms going on. So it's just like really nebulous sense of time. And that's all happening underlined underneath everything. Yeah. by that one bass line. Yeah. That goes throughout the entire track and just underlines the whole thing. So that groove, that funk groove is still happening, but there's all that ambient noodly Brian Eno stuff in there. And then that the weird preacher vocal delivery. And then the lyrical content is... It's pretty odd. It's profound and simple at the same time, I guess. Yeah, his vocal delivery is almost anti-singing sometimes in some of the songs where there's not clear melodies, but there's still notes and still it's really strange. In an interview with that David Byrne conducted with himself <laughs> that was on MTV a while, uh, he said that the better a singer is, the harder it is to believe what they're saying. So that was his philosophy on that. Did he explain why he felt that way? No, he doesn't like explaining things. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Well, he wrote a book. I never read it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our next act is from about the same time frame, Devo. And we've got a a couple of examples from them. The first track is from 1977, and it's Jocko Homo. Thank you. 
I think that's our weirdest track so far. That's weirder than Talking Heads for sure. <laughs> By a lot. But you know when it starts to repeat because it, you know, like the verses repeat again, yeah. it's like it's a little less weird because the sounds are less unexpected. It's it, it, instantly familiar. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> but it moves less from what on earth to just, oh, a weird collection of sounds. And it's less layered than the Talking Heads. It's more immediate to what's happening. But what's weird about it is partially the rhythm because it's in seven. And that just throws people off immediately because it's not as most beats are in one and two and three. And it's four also and much more composed music in the sense that it like it, it's almost sounded like music concrete. It was like clearly made in the studio. Some of these sounds were samples Parts that sounded that were cutting, pasted in, collected. Like cut in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is the first artist I, I think we've listened to that's overtly that. I don't think there is any sampling in this. I think this is all being done live. Really? Like, I'm pretty certain because what I'm hearing is there's the real, really mechanical kind of drumming, and that's a drum kit. That wah, 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 that that's actually yeah. just a ring modulated. That could be a guitar with a ring modulator. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that like cause sampling didn't exist then in 77. Then it's getting the effect. Then it's yeah. getting the effect of yeah. that. Well, which the is, sounds come which from, is amazing. Yeah. yeah, which is amazing. And remarkably performed then. Pretty tight ensemble to make it that They're clean. actually like like mechanically. That, compart- that compartmentalized. Yeah. yeah. So another track from them a couple years later to, to sort of show their, their development. It's amazing to me that they ever got any engagement with the mainstream industry in any way. This next track is uh, it's pretty funky. It's Smart Patrol slash Mr. Mr. DNA. DNA. I just want to say that that's actually almost a suite. Um, we couldn't possibly fit the entire thing in here, but it's actually like it changes a lot. It's a it's an interestingly composed little song there. But what strikes me about Devo is is the aesthetic that they are completely committed to. That is complete. They have their outfits that match that. They have the sound that matches it. It's sort of this weird like kind of fifties alternate future sci-fi well it's all wrapped up in the the philosophical message they're putting out about devolution yeah i mean there's a whole philosophical thing they're a part of i mean it does influence why their music is weird a little bit but that's also just them as composers and i think a couple of the members of the band especially like mark mothersball the work they've done since then or outside of the band has shown that their real proclivity and skill as composers yeah they do sound a little bit like composition squeezed into song form yeah that makes sense well, it's not it's, that songs aren't compositions, but sort of so aggressively uncool, you know, it's so <laughs> left, right, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's just so left footed and odd and just like, uh, I, I can't gesture over the podcast, can I? No, it doesn't work. It doesn't, um, doesn't but I do right. think that you know a lot of people about, right? respond to that sound in Devo. That's that kind of really driving sense that you feel when you listen to their music. But there's also a lot of space mm-hmm. in their songs. And I think that those aesthetics really you know, make people respond to their music. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I never really thought about that, but there is sort of um, when you're when you're working with like synths and stuff like that, there is a tendency to just like keep on throwing more stuff into this pile, and that doesn't really happen much in Devo. Yeah, it's 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 nice and dry and sparse, but also full of energy. Yeah, weird, weird energy. <laughs> Our next major label weirdo is a notable punk act who had a lot of activity outside 
any major label or mainstream engagement right through the 80s. Mostly throughout the 80s, they were a good example of this new grassroots punk movement that was happening all across the country. Just a lot of bands starting to make their own labels and record their own music and book their own tours. And the Butthole Surfers were one of the weirdest ones and ended up years later making it onto a major label. They're one of those bands that you never would have expected it. Here's what they started sounding like. This is from their first album. It's called Concubine. So that's The Butthole Surfer's Concubine, 1984. Are we going to lose like our everyone rating for saying Butthole Surfer's over and over again? No, it's the <laughs> name of a band, you know? It's the name of the band. It's the name of the band. It's not a dirty word. Man, that say. almost sounded like someone throwing up music. <laughs> I was thinking it's sort of a haunted it's, house aesthetic. It was somewhere between singing and screaming, most definitely. And the distortion, I mean, just in the... What did they do to make the sound Yeah, I mean, literally so, like the wall of you know, sound squish down compression focus, compression driving yeah yeah and distorted and definitely a specific aesthetic to somewhere between music and noise almost so you're a major label and our guy and you got to go find a new band and somehow you stumble upon these guys and someone decided to give them a shot and i think this is an outgrowth of nirvana in 1991 they hit it big and knocked michael jackson off the top of the charts and it created this huge sea change like we saw Back in the 60s, I think it was another time where this was really huge, and it led to all these strange bands. We're going to look at a couple of them that got snatched up by the major labels. So this is like an example of what Zappa was talking about happened in the 60s. Exactly. Butthole Server's been doing their own thing as part of this in, in independent do-it-yourself subculture, and corporate guys were like, well, what are the kids into? That! Yes! So is, is this track pre-major label for no, them? Yeah, Concubine was, the one okay. we listened to. That's right. pre-major label. Now this one is uh, 1996, our second track, uh, and it's called Pepper. Marky got with Sharon, and Sharon got Sharia. She was Sharon, Sharon's outlook on the topic of disease. Mikey had a facial scar, and Bobby was a racist. They were all in love with dying. They were doing it in Texas. Tommy played piano like a kid out in the rain And then he lost his leg in Dallas He was dancing with the train They were all in love with dying They were drinking from a fountain That was pouring like an avalanche Coming down the mountain I don't mind the sun sometimes The images it shows I can taste you on my lips And smell you in my clothes Cinnamon and sugar And softly spoken lies just how to look through other people's eyes. I miss the 90s. I want to kick a trash can and light something on fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, all that, that distortion and compression, that's still there. Not well, quite as much of it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's a lot less compressed. It sounds like they got a lot more money. I, I have a feeling they got some samplers going, a lot cleaner effects and everything. 
but yeah, I, I, I love that track. It doesn't sound like they sold out. I mean, it no. still sounds like the same band. They're still doing that alternative psychedelia yeah. thing. Were you hoping for a shocking contrast on this one, Anthony? I hear a contrast. I hear um, a huge talk contrast. To you. Yeah, what do you what? Because this okay, this song it was number one on the rock charts, and I think the first track would have never gotten on the charts. No. Period. So I, I see that as a pretty big contrast, but I don't think they completely it's not like their music turned vanilla there's definitely still a very strange weird bent to it and that's what i think is cool about and how they were able to this band that you never would have expected to actually have a hit somehow put together a hit (laughs) they did while while not abandoning their core aesthetic yeah okay we have just uh, a couple three more examples just one track each to kind of round out uh, a little closer to the present day our discussion of major label weirdos the next one is uh, a track from 1990 by They Might Be Giants. They had a pretty big following. Yeah. Most they, people they are big. Know they might them. be giants. They're good. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's right in the name. Get out! Get out! <laughs> They're still big though, right? Aren't they? These guys, like the Butthole Surfers, had a very long career before they had this hit. Butthole Surfers. It was their 12th year. Whereas these guys started 82, I think. So it's about eight years into their run. And this song, um, certainly if you were around at the time, I mean, you got a lot of... I mean, I was in college, though. I was just starting college, so it was a super Which popular track? in college uh, radio play it? and things like that. It is uh, Istanbul, not Constantinople, it's which not. to me is the iconic They Might Be Giants track. And everything about this track says iconoclast and weird, and its sound world is certainly unique. It's sort of descriptive of the topic. The lyrical content is nowhere near typical sunshiny pop lyric content. And it's so much fun. And, uh, and of course, the vocal delivery is pretty unique in anything, uh, in everything. Sorry, I'm mumbly, mumbly, mumbly. You have to edit that out. Uh, Keep it. Leave it in. Uh, so here we go. So it's 1990s Istanbul, not Constantinople, by They Might Be Giants. Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. I always love these moments with all of the artists and, and recordings that we're looking at in this episode where the people who are just doing their own thing break through and lots of people go, hey, you're right, that is pretty cool stuff. And this, I remember thinking this at the time with They Might Be Giants, that here these guys were just sort of doing their own thing with this totally unique sound and it took a little while, but they're, you know, suddenly everybody noticed, or a lot of people did. I just think their music really embodies that idea of fun music that is outside of the box, that music should be anything you want it to be. I mean, they have so many different kinds of music that go into so many different subjects. And so they really have no shame exploring anything, no matter how random or silly it may seem. And I love that. They did a great album of songs about science for children. Yeah, it's great. It's really awesome. Yeah. I talked about being really into weird music as a high schooler. Out of all the stuff I get into, definitely one of the ones that I got into the most and still continue to really enjoy now that I've learned about all their kinds of music is Mr. Bungle. And most stuff done by Mike Patton and the bass player Trevor Dunn, they have very wide-ranging musical influence in lots of different bands and projects. This one was their baby because it started when they were just high schoolers. And because Mike Patton was in Faith No More and got popular, they were able to piggyback on that and got signed, and they are one of the weirdest bands by far, I think, to ever get signed to a major label. This track is quote-unquote from their first album in 1991. 
that's some pretty trippy stuff, I have to say. But I do notice that with a lot of the examples, even though we seem to be getting into weirder and weirder territory, these artists seem to get away with a lot of crazy harmonic choices or vocal choices or lyrical choices. Yeah, by having a good beat to hang on to because that one, even as weird as it was, I I wanted to jam out to it. Having a good beat and having chops. I think this is a good band that can be really weird because they're insane musicians and are very well-educated musicians and know lots of different styles that can jump between different areas. I think a lot of the examples we've listened to in this episode, that's critical. Yeah. yeah. That musicians actually, the guys in the band, are really good. And there's something rhythmic to hold on to. I think that's another thing that people respond to. It may not always be clear. Some kind of groove. Yeah, because, I mean, we had the seven example mm-hmm. um, but it should have some sort of rhythmic content I think that listeners can hang on to some sort of pattern that they can recognize that allows the other content to kind of be more fluid I think two things that I notice are common are all of our weirdos I think have a really interestingly diverse and eclectic stylistic vocabulary like they draw on a lot of influences a wide sound palette yeah, a wide sound mm-hmm. palette yeah thank you that's a much simpler way to say that and unexpected and they smash some really unexpected things together and another thing that i noticed that is really common and this may be a, i don't know if this is a feature of trying to pack a dense composition into the time frame of a song or a feature of the fact that you know a lot of these guys worked in the studio but the rate of change is rapid and pretty abrupt. Mm-hmm. And I know this, that's pretty common. Music's dense, has a, a lot of information in it. Yeah, yeah. And so I noticed that's something that's in common too that's really highlighted in Mr. Bungle. This is, to me, this rings the, like the Zappa bell, like in, in that sense of really highly proficient musicianship and super, just on the surface of it, weirdo combinations of sounds. I mean, you're right, Lissette, this is like video game haunted house yeah, this is Bowser's Castle. But like on a bad acid trip. Yeah. Kinda. Kind of friendly, but also genuinely terrifying in equal measure. I don't know. But it's I'm okay with it. It's a track, right? And all their music is so... Oh, also, I want to mention Mike Patton's vocal line, right? What is it that melody? Like barely tonal, if it even is at all. And certainly not in any conventional sense. Love that melody. Mike Patton is such an interesting musician because he does so many styles of music and his voice can do anything he sings italian operas and he sings in metal bands and he sings in pop bands and he's one of those people who just will meld their voice to whatever it needs to be and it's funny to hear him in this band because i feel like this is him truly letting loose more so than any of his other groups I the thing I enjoy about each of mr bungle's albums is that you just never know what's going to happen from track to track and within the tracks, or, or from even, moment yeah, to moment. From moment to moment, this is true. This is, anything's on the table. Anything's on. Okay, one more. We got one more. Take us into the uh, early aughts. Pull us into this century. We're into the 21st century now. This is the Flaming Lips. This is a band that goes back to the early 80s and got signed in 1990. And now we're listening to them in 2002. They had their biggest breakthrough, I think, with Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots.
I have to get a little bit cheesy here. And I actually first heard this song through Stuart when I first met him. When we first started interacting with each other, when we had met, we exchanged music um, before we were even officially dating or anything like that. And uh, this is one of the songs that he gave me. And I remember not ever having heard The Flaming Lips before, but when I heard this song, I really immediately responded to it. And it was one of my favorite tracks on the whole CD of, of different songs that he had given me. And to this day, that song has a really special place in my heart because of how fun it was and how different it was. And um, it just, to me, represents that time in my life a little bit too. Like I said, I got I had to get a little a little cheesy. Sorry, guys. I think that that, like, despite some weirdness of timbres and textures that are going on there, when you strip it, that's just a lovely song, right? I mean, that, like, that's just a lovely song. It's, it's simple, beautiful. I think written. of the examples we've listened to, this is the most successful blending of their own the weirdness of their sound and a very accessible song Mm -hmm. just a really pretty song yeah i think you're right but there is especially if you listen to it with headphones on there is a weirdness to the whole track every sound on the track there's a filter that everything's going through that is very distinctive and very unique and then of course there are some very noticeably unusual sounds and things like that in the track too that i think make it pretty unexpected That's all our examples. So now, okay, so we talked about all this stuff was in the context of back when major labels in the music industry and the recording industry meant something existed as a monolithic thing. And that's why we really only went up to 2002, because once you get into the 2000s, the Internet is such a disruptive, you know, in file sharing and so forth are such disruptive technologies in that industry that so many musicians are not working through any label system, let alone a major label system. So where are our weirdos now? YouTube. YouTube? YouTube. At this point, I think we can't even talk about what the major label weirdos are because everything has become so fractured that anyone who wants to make anything can do it and can find their audience regardless of how weird it is. And also now there seem to be a lot more specific labels for those kind mm-hmm. of different, you know, subgenres where there used to be just big major labels. Yeah. There are far more small labels now that those kind of artists can can go to. Yeah. And I, I think that the music has become far less, pro- like the selling of recorded music has become so much less profitable that they can't really, the major labels can't risk taking on these weirdos anymore. You know, they have to go with something that, like, you've got to make another Avengers sequel. You've got to make another Taylor Swift album. And frankly, for a lot of them, the internet is a is a better place for them to find their audience any, anyway, rather than through, you know, the distribution of a major label. They're able to more directly connect with their subgenre and exactly. their subculture. I have certainly encountered more weirdo music in the last 10 years, right? YouTube was 2005 than I ever did before. Most definitely because we don't uh, have to wait for a major label to pick them up to get them down to whatever corner of the world you happen to be living in. Or if you happen to live in that major city's hip subculture, you may get to hear the cool stuff. It was really the only two ways you could do it before, it seemed like. One thing that I really appreciate about these songs is that it's kind of a journey away from what you normally listen to. I may not, you know, listen to this every single day. It may not be the first thing that I go to when I choose my music, but it's always something that presses a refresh button. Like I said before, it kind of pulls me out of taking my music too seriously. It kind of opens up and broadens my perspective. And it does, it cleans out your ears in that sense. I know what you mean when you say presses a refresh button because it hits you with so many different kinds of sounds all at once and in such unexpected combinations that it kind of knocks habits out. It knocks patterns that you've fallen into in your listening and musical thinking. Certainly you as a songwriter and performer, that's very valuable. Yeah, it removes my ideas of what music has to be or what it should be, and that's great. Also, you should try and find the music that's your kind of weird because all these examples might not necessarily appeal to you, but... Being weird's fun, and you should find out what sort of weird stuff you like, because it's boring if you just continue to always like the stuff that everyone else likes. And not uh, universally speaking, but I do find, as a pattern, a lot more of the weird stuff is more thoughtful and substantial than 
the majority of what you'll find that's like other stuff. Does that did that make sense? Well, it's easy to copy stuff, but it's hard to be original exactly. and unique. Exactly, it, it, because it, it you have to be thoughtful to be able kind of to successfully be weird to do something that someone else still makes something hasn't worthwhile. Really done. Exactly, yeah. Gasoline, 